This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. In March 1863, Christiana Vinson received a letter from her brother-in-law, William. Two months earlier, the 57th Georgia Regiment's company commander had sent her a terse note informing her that her husband, Wright, had died of smallpox. She had hoped William could give her some explanation, or at least an assurance that Wright's last days had been comfortable. But William didn't know any more than she did. He wrote, Chris... I can't tell you how he was treated after he was into the hospital. I'd done all that I could to get to go wait on him, but they would not let me. Chris, it hurt me very bad to think that he had to lie there and die without any of us with him. Chris, you wanted me to fetch him home when I come if I could. If I can, I will be sure to do it, for I don't want any of my folks to be left in Mississippi. I do hate it worse than any place I have ever been at yet. But I am in hope that he is in a better world than this, where there is no more war nor troubles. I want you to kiss Charlie for me. Tell him to be a good boy till I come home, and I will bring him a present. Nothing more. Only this remains your loving brother until death. W.D. Vinson. Wright Vinson's body would never be brought home to Georgia, He was among the thousands of men abandoned in unmarked graves across the Confederate South, falling off the historical record with an absent or presumed dead marked on the company roster. But his brother William didn't get to disappear just yet. He had to survive until the war was lost. Welcome to Survival, a ParCast original. I'm Irma Blanco. And I'm Tim Johnson. Every Monday, we'll take you inside incredible true stories of life-or-death situations. This is our second episode on the 57th Georgia Infantry Regiment. Last week, we followed the grueling first year of the regiment's service through the eyes of the two Vinson brothers. This week, we'll follow William Vinson, his comrades the Braswell brothers, and other members of the regiment as they made increasingly desperate attempts to survive the Civil War. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. 
reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. We also now have merchandise, so head to parcast.com slash merch for more information. In May of 1862, roughly a thousand men reported for duty in the Confederate Army's 57th Georgia Infantry Regiment. For the next year, they marched in endless circles around the South, narrowly avoiding every major battle of the Civil War. Along the way, they lost hundreds of soldiers to disease, exhaustion, and desertion. Among them was 23-year-old Private Wright Vinson, who died of smallpox in January 1863 without having fired a single shot in battle. His 25-year-old brother, Corporal William Vincent, didn't even have time to collect his body from the hospital before the troops were ordered to march out to Vicksburg, Mississippi. Marching with them was 16-year-old Private Robert Braswell, the youngest son of an old plantation family from Fort Valley, just a few miles south of the Vincents' farm. His older brothers, Billy and Samuel, were in Mobile, Alabama, with the 1st Confederate Infantry, and Robert needed a good battle story to tell when he saw them again. Luckily, after a year of endless marching, the 57th Georgia was finally about to see some combat. On May 14, 1863, the Union captured Jackson, Mississippi, and continued east towards Vicksburg. Nearby, Confederate troops were stationed at Champion Hill, halfway between the two cities, to stop the Union's advance. During the moonlight hours of May 15th, the 34th, 36th, and 39th Georgia Infantry Regiments made their way up the slope of Champion Hill. The 56th and 57th, however, were instructed to stay with the artillery at the base of the hill, at an intersection known as the Crossroads. Because of the relatively short range and inaccuracy of 19th century weaponry, soldiers were typically positioned in long, straight rows, intended to meet the enemy head-on. However, if the opposing troops were able to approach from the side, they could easily surround the end of the line and inflict serious damage before the rows could reorient themselves. Thus, strategic manuals dictated that the flank of each line should be protected, either by a fortification, a natural barricade, or another regiment of soldiers. In this case, the all-important artillery at the crossroads would be guarded by the 56th and 57th Georgia. But there were no other troops left to guard them. Once they were in position, the Georgians looked to their left and right and saw nothing. They were completely defenseless from every direction. They were, as the infantry called it, cannon fodder. General Ulysses S. Grant arrived to personally command the Union offensive at 10 o'clock the next morning. Luckily for the 57th Georgia, rather than advance towards the crossroads, the Yankees crept silently up the hill from the opposite side, hid among the dense forest, and locked their sights on the row of Confederate troops lining the crest of the hill. At 11.30 a.m., they suddenly opened fire. The Southerners were caught completely off guard. 
Not a single shot had given away the enemy's position in the forest. The Confederates barely had time to fire off a single volley before the nine Union regiments were storming their ranks, battering them with bayonets and daggers. Due to poor planning and confusion on the part of their commanders, the Confederate line at the top of Champion Hill was bent at a right angle into a sharp L shape instead of the straight line that was preferred for volley fire tactics. To make matters worse, there were giant gaps left where the 56th and 57th Georgia regiments should have been. They were outnumbered, unprepared, and at a severe tactical disadvantage. Their only option was to fall back. One by one, each regiment gave up the fight and fled down the hill. Down at the crossroads, Robert Braswell saw a swarm of gray uniforms streaming down the slope just a few hundred yards away, chased by a stampede of blue-suited Yankees. This was not the kind of glorious battle he'd imagined. Leading the charge was the 28th Iowa, which was nicknamed the Preacher's Regiment, since almost all of its members were clergymen. But these preachers were the fire and brimstone type, shooting off bullets as they ran. At the bottom of the hill, the 57th's commander, Colonel William Barkaloo, shouted instructions to fire. His assistant officer, Thomas Dyson, leapt down from his horse and waved his hat, signaling for the men to get ready. Then, he was struck by a bullet and fatally wounded. Braswell took cover behind a rail of the wooden fence. Within seconds, the man next to him was shot through the thigh. Then, the man next to him was cut down and instantly killed. And a bullet grazed the face of another soldier nearby, blowing the tip of his nose clean off. The 57th Georgia didn't have time to reload their rifles before the fighting priests had completely overrun them. The regiment did the only thing they knew how to do, retreat. They made a dash for General John Pemberton's headquarters, 600 yards south of the crossroads. Pemberton was an accomplished general with decades of battle under his belt. But because of his abrasive personality and northern heritage, few of his Confederate officers trusted him. He had spent the morning riding from camp to camp, trying to convince a couple of unruly generals to obey his orders. The Georgia Brigade, running scared from the battlefield, was the last thing he wanted to see when he looked out the window. When the soldiers reached the house, Pemberton stepped out to meet them. He rallied them with an impassioned speech. The exact words have been lost to history, but it struck either inspiration, shame, or fear into their hearts. Within minutes, the ragtag young men of the 57th Georgia Regiment had regrouped and were charging back into battle. By the time they made it back to the crossroads, they were finally flanked by the reinforcements Pemberton had been trying to pull together all morning but the 57th was still in the center of the fray, surging ahead through the middle of the Union line. The spirit of battle rallied them forward. By 2.30 p.m., the Confederates had pushed the enemy back up the hillside and retaken Champion Hill. But they'd taken heavy losses in the process. The 57th Georgia had gone into the battle with only 450 men and left a trail of bodies behind them. It was their first taste of war, 
and in the excitement, they were stampeding right into the middle of a firestorm with no strategy and no regard for their own safety. The regiment's color bearer was shot down almost immediately after returning to battle. Another soldier grabbed the flag from his fallen comrade's hands, but soon he was cut down too. The third soldier to pick up the colors was also almost instantly killed. Still, the rest of the men kept pushing forward. By late afternoon, they were within sight of General Grant's Union headquarters at the Champion House. The Yankees were shocked that the men who'd turned their backs and ran just a few hours earlier were now putting up such a spirited fight. But as they got closer to the Champion House, they were greeted by three more brigades of Union soldiers, with 16 cannons pointed right at them. The Union had seemingly unlimited reinforcements. The Confederates were decimated. They were short on ammunition and even shorter on soldiers. There was no way they could outlast Grant's forces. As night fell, General Pemberton ordered a retreat. The men staggered back over the hill, picking up their wounded along the way. When the 57th Georgia made it to safety, they called Roll to tally the damages. 27 dead, 104 wounded, 16 taken prisoner, 50 missing and presumed dead. Of the 450 men who'd gone into the battle, only 253 were left to fight. The next morning, General Joseph Johnston sent Pemberton a message. If you are invested in Vicksburg, you must ultimately surrender. Under such circumstances, instead of losing both troops and place, we must, if possible, save the troops. However, Pemberton decided to disregard the order. Logic be damned, he was determined to hold firm and defend his post. His troops assembled around the perimeter of Vicksburg, dug into their trenches, and waited for the next attack. The 57th Georgia, both because of the heavy losses they'd taken and because of their general lack of fighting skills, was told to stay back and guard the southern front at Hall's Ferry Road, where no attack was expected. This prediction proved correct. Vincent and Braswell hunkered down and waited, listening to the distant barrage of artillery through the thick forest to the north. At first, it was just a faraway echo. By May 22nd, it had inched closer. The Yankees were assaulting the square fort, just a mile to their left. But after a four-hour bombardment, the noise suddenly stopped. It had become clear to General Grant that getting through the Confederate defenses and into Vicksburg wouldn't be quick or easy. Rather than risk more of his men's lives in another firefight, he decided to cut off Confederate supply lines and outlast them until they surrendered. He ordered his troops to surround the city, dig trenches, and settle in for a long siege. By the time night fell, the 57th Georgia was standing face to face with four regiments of Union soldiers camped just a few hundred yards down the road. Over the next few weeks, the Yankee trenches kept zigzagging closer while their artillery fired off shells around the clock. The term shell shock was coined during World War I to describe the symptoms caused by constant artillery explosions. 
The physical and emotional stress of being exposed to loud, repeated blasts can cause anxiety, confusion, nightmares, headaches, and fatigue. As if that wasn't enough, one unlucky man from the 57th Georgia peeked over the top of his trench to scope out the scene and was shot in the head by a sniper. The Union was employing sharpshooters to kill anyone who showed any movement. Between the constant cannon fire and the threat of being shot in the head, the men of the 57th were expecting death at any moment. If the sharpshooters didn't get them, hunger, dysentery, or malaria would. The trenches had stockpiles of bullets, but no food or clean water. William Vinson started to wonder whether he'd go the same way as his brother, a slow, quiet death buried in an unmarked hole somewhere in the wretched state of Mississippi. By the end of June, half the Confederate troops had been pulled out of their entrenchments and taken to the hospital. For the few healthy men who remained, the food supply was so low that rations were reduced to one biscuit and a piece of rancid bacon each day. Without adequate food, anything and everything was being used as sustenance. Dead horses and mules, stray dogs, even shoe leather. An official statement went out from the Richmond headquarters on June 28th. The Major General recommends to the troops that when a mule is maimed by the fire of the enemy, soup is perhaps the most palatable form in which the flesh can be used. Robert Braswell, against all odds, had grown another three inches in the past year. At a towering six foot four, he was now one of the tallest and youngest members of the regiment. Since bigger bodies naturally require more energy to function, and younger people tend to have faster metabolisms, this meant that Robert's body would be burning through its fat stores more quickly than his older, shorter comrades. This put him at an increased risk for the physical and mental effects of starvation, including apathy, unstable moods, and decreased brain function. Those side effects may have been a factor in his risky next move, after a few weeks in the trenches, Braswell and a few friends slipped out of their foxhole, crept through the sharpshooter-infested woods, and strolled right into town. Like the Confederate soldiers, the civilian residents of Vicksburg were also trapped in the city without supply lines. As such, they weren't overly friendly towards troops who came foraging for food. There was always at least one citizen standing guard at night to keep wandering soldiers away from their vegetable gardens. But one woman sitting on her porch took pity on the starving young boy strolling by. She stepped inside and returned with a home-baked meat pie still warm from the oven. Braswell and his friends gobbled it up in seconds. He thanked her and said, "'That there's the best pie I ever ate, ma'am.' The woman replied, Glad it is. That's the first rat pie I've ever baked. With even the townspeople sustaining themselves on rodents, General Pemberton realized he was running out of time. It was clear that the Yankees were willing to stay put until every single Confederate starved to death. The only way to survive was to surrender. On the afternoon of July 3rd, after six and a half weeks in the trenches, the Confederates waved a white flag of truce. 
Pemberton and Grant met under a tree halfway between their two lines to negotiate the terms of surrender. Taking all 30,000 Confederates prisoner would be monumentally time-consuming and expensive. So instead, the troops would be paroled. That is, they were allowed to go home under the condition that they wouldn't return to duty until an equal number of Union soldiers were released in an exchange. The next morning, on the 4th of July, 1863, the 200 or so men still standing from the 57th Georgia lined up to surrender their arms and colors, the ultimate disgrace. Some of the other regiments had cut up their flags the night before to avoid the dishonor of turning them over to the enemy. But the 57th marched forward with their heads held high and their bullet-riddled Confederate flag billowing in the morning wind one last time. William Vinson had gotten what he wanted. He was going home and in one piece. But as he laid down his rifle and unclasped his sword belt, the relief must have been tinged with disappointment. Their regiment had lost more than half their men since arriving in Vicksburg. And for what? Nothing was gained, not even glory. Robert Braswell had finally seen the combat he'd been dreaming about, and it had ended in failure and shame. And when he got home, he would have to tell his older brothers all about it. Coming up, the men of the 57th Georgia go home and are almost immediately called back into battle. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now back to the story. On the 4th of July, 1863, the 57th Georgia Regiment surrendered at Vicksburg, Mississippi, at the end of a 47-day siege. After they signed their parole agreements, they were sent home until they could be officially exchanged with Union prisoners and returned to duty. When the train rolled into Fort Valley, Georgia, the starved and dirt-cake soldiers were given a hero's welcome. The crowd of enthusiastic friends and neighbors apparently hadn't heard how total their defeat had been. Robert Braswell pushed his way through the excitement and found his mother. They barely hugged each other hello before she dropped the bad news. His grandfather, Williamson Mims, was on his deathbed. Williamson Mims was one of the richest plantation owners in the area. When he died, Robert's immediate family stood to inherit hundreds of acres of land and the few dozen enslaved people who worked it. 
It may not have registered in his mind, but unlike many of his poorer neighbors, Robert's livelihood was directly tied to the war's final outcome. Meanwhile, William Vinson made the 15-mile journey from Fort Valley back to Crawford County. His family would be full of questions. His little brother had died on his watch, and now he had to tell the tale to his grieving parents, to little Charlie, who had just turned two and would grow up without a father, and to Christiana, widowed at age 23. He couldn't even tell them that Wright had died in the service of a great cause. Anyone who had been on the battlefield could see that the Confederacy was doomed. He wasn't alone. All over Fort Valley, the men of the 57th were dodging questions about the war. Combat veterans often avoid talking about their experiences for a variety of different reasons. For those who experience PTSD, it can be painful to recount traumatic memories. For others, according to author and Iraq war veteran David W. Peters, many times they feel the story would be too much for their loved one to hear. But there are deeper reasons veterans don't talk about it. We know any story we tell cannot capture what really happened over there and what really happened inside of us. After a few months of rest, the troops were called back to Savannah in mid-October, 1863. The prisoner exchange with the Union still hadn't officially happened, but the Confederate leadership didn't see that as a problem. The rank-and-file soldiers begged to differ. If they were captured in battle or otherwise found out by the Yankees, they could be executed for breaking the terms of their parole. When the 57th Georgia regrouped in Savannah, they were hit with yet another blow to their morale. Their trusted commander, Colonel Barkaloo, was gone on sick leave. William Vincent had been in Barkaloo's regiment for two years, ever since he first enlisted in the state troops. If their unfailing leader couldn't make it through, all hope was gone. Soon after arriving, the 57th was assigned to guard Fort Bartow, three miles east of Savannah. Since there were only about 200 men left in their regiment, this meant every soldier had to stand watch at the picket line every single day without being relieved. True, standing in silence at camp was better than crouching in the trenches, but it bred boredom. It gave them time to think, time to dwell on their inevitable defeat. And after a few months, the entire brigade had had enough of the Civil War. In January 1864, the 54th Georgia, which was stationed at Rose Dew Island on the coast of Savannah, began plotting a mutiny. On the night of the 12th, they would grab their arms and ammunition and march right out of camp. They planned on moving through Savannah, picking up their fellow soldiers at Beaulieu and White Bluff, and meet the 57th at their camp at Fort Bartow. From there, the brigade would make their way across the country, stopping at every fort in their path and convince the rest of the Confederate Army to abandon their posts and join the march home. The soldiers knew they were fighting a losing battle, and the surest way to survive was to surrender. The low-ranking men didn't have the authority to formally surrender, but if the entire army refused to fight, it would, in effect, end the war before more lives were lost. It's unclear exactly how many men were involved in the plot, 
but they seemed fully confident that the rest of their comrades would be willing to join them. And at first, it looked like they were right. A petition circulated throughout at least three camps in the brigade, collecting the signatures of men who pledged to participate. But just days before the mutiny was scheduled to begin, one still loyal soldier in the 54th Georgia revealed the plan to his officer, who passed the news on to the brigade's commander, Brigadier General Raleigh E. Colston. The ringleaders of the plot were promptly arrested. There was no proof that any men from the 57th Georgia were involved, but since the entire plan relied on their participation, the regiment couldn't escape the blame. In his official recommendations after the incident, Colston asked the regional commander to kindly remove the 57th from his brigade. He wrote, The spirit of this regiment is bad. The impression prevails, probably with good reason, that they will not fight if brought before the enemy. They are demoralized by the influence of home, to which they are too near. The 57th knew they had to do something to redeem their reputation, or they'd lose their relatively comfortable post in Savannah and be thrown back onto the marching trail. On March 7, 1864, the men collectively published a statement in the Savannah Republican. It read, Resolved that the 57th Georgia Regiment, unconquered by their toils in Kentucky or the misfortunes of Middle Tennessee and Mississippi, are determined never to lay down our arms until truth and justice be crowned with liberty in the glorious independence of our beloved country. Resolved that nothing has yet occurred to shake our confidence in the ability of the South finally to achieve her independence. The lofty rhetoric did absolutely nothing to change their commander's opinion. But luckily, before Colston could punish them too severely, their ranks were reorganized once again. Colston was reassigned to the garrison in Petersburg, Virginia, and the 57th Georgia was sent to defend Atlanta. They'd join a new brigade under the firm hand of 57-year-old General Hugh W. Mercer. On May 20th, the regiment stepped off the train at Alatoona Station, just northwest of Atlanta. They'd only just marched into camp when Robert Braswell heard a familiar voice calling his name. He turned to see his two older brothers, Billy and Samuel. It was the first time they'd seen each other in two years, and Robert barely recognized them. They were so thin and weary. Billy, now 24, had lost the patriotic spark in his eyes. He'd been promoted to master sergeant, and keeping his brigade's spirit up was a heavy burden to bear. Samuel, at 20 years old, wasn't looking much better. Just five days earlier, their regiment had seen their first heavy combat at the Battle of Resaca, and hundreds of their men had been killed. But now, all three Braswell brothers would be fighting side by side in the same division. At least, they could be miserable together. There was one other familiar face among the crowd. Colonel Charles Olmsted, the once commander of Fort Pulaski, in the two years since the siege at Pulaski, Olmsted had matured from a green first-time commander to an accomplished 27-year-old warhorse. His regiment, the 1st Georgia Volunteers, had just been reassigned to join Mercer's brigade. 
Olmsted recognized a few of his old Georgia State troops at the camp. Robert Braswell, William Vincent. Now he'd finally get to see them in action. The greenhorns who'd earned their stripes. The boys who had become men. Or the bright-eyed youngsters who had become the most forlorn regiment in the Confederate Army. Olmsted must have been surprised by the starry state of the 57th Georgia. They'd only ever participated in one battle, but they had lost three-quarters of their men, and the few who remained were starved, sickly, and utterly devoid of hope. He soon found out the reason. Mercer's brigade was part of a reserve division, which meant they were forced to wander all over to support whichever Confederate division needed assistance. The 57th, as we know, was used to this by now. But Olmsted and his 1st Georgia volunteers had, thus far, spent most of their time stationed in Savannah. Joining the reserve ranks was a rude awakening. The brigade was roused from their beds at all hours of the night for sudden movements up and down Kennesaw Mountain. Olmsted recalled, The memory of the night marches is like a nightmare to me. Horses and men, wearied and exhausted, stumbling along through red clay mud and darkness. Ordinarily on the march, the men were lively and good-natured, often breaking into songs. But these night tramps were generally made in moody silence. The next two months passed as expected. A series of minor skirmishes and retreats, a few weeks in the trenches, and absolutely no progress toward pushing the Yankees back. No matter how many Union soldiers they killed, more and more troops arrived to replace them. By the beginning of July, the weary Confederates gave up. The only thing left to do was retreat, regroup, and prepare for the inevitable battle for Atlanta. The order to retreat came down at about 11 p.m. on July 2nd. Mercer's brigade was once again roused from their slumber to march through the darkness. Behind them, the peaks of Kennesaw Mountain burned red as cannon fire set the trees ablaze. Olmsted sat on his horse, nodding off in sleep. Then suddenly, his eyes snapped open. He had the feeling of being somewhere familiar. They were marching across the campus of the Georgia Military Institute, where Olmsted had gone to school. He remembered watching the mountain burn once while he was a student, not from battle, but from a brush fire. Olmsted took one last look at the dorm, where they'd spent so many nights dreaming of the future. He knew that in a matter of days, every brick would be turned to rubble. When they made it to their camp outside Atlanta the next morning, Olmsted received even more demoralizing news. The brigade's commander, Hugh W. Mercer, had fallen ill. Olmsted would be replacing him. He kept his expression steady and accepted the command. He couldn't show his superiors any hint that he was reluctant. As he lined his men along the city's northern perimeter at Peachtree Creek, Olmsted remarked to Captain Wallace Howard that they were nearing the point where the great battle must be fought. Howard replied candidly, I don't know. It looks to me like the beginning of the end. While Mercer's brigade, or now Olmsted's brigade, 
assumed position along the southern side of Peachtree Creek, Union troops were forming their line right across the water. Even though they were standing nose to nose, there was an unspoken agreement among both sides that they would hold their fire. Since their firearms took a long time to reload, the most effective strategy was to attack in one sudden coordinated charge. Firing off stray shots before the action officially commenced was considered a serious breach in protocol. So, the men stood on their respective sides of Peachtree Creek for over a week, waiting for the order to shoot. With the war on pause, the mood was positively friendly. They shouted jokes across the water, calling each other Yank and Johnny Reb. The Union troops had luxuries that were unheard of in the Confederate camps, like coffee and sugar. Occasionally, the soldiers would swim out to meet each other and trade tobacco for food. Olmsted didn't see a problem with this, but he was ordered to put a stop to it. Still, when he looked across the river in the cold, rainy morning and saw the Yankees carrying around their pots of steaming hot coffee, he couldn't help but feel a pang of jealousy. After 10 days of waiting, Olmsted's orders finally came down on the morning of July 20th. The Union was crossing Peachtree Creek. The battle was about to start. Coming up, the fight for Atlanta begins. Now back to the story. On July 20th, 1864, Confederate troops lined up along Peachtree Creek, ready to defend Atlanta from the Union soldiers just across the water. When Robert Braswell took his position on the riverbank, he looked over to see his brothers, Billy and Samuel, standing just a few hundred yards away. The 57th Georgia and the 1st Confederate Infantry were stationed side by side. At 4 p.m., they charged. Olmsted led his brigade through the patch of dense swampland and broke out into the clear fields to find absolutely nothing. Their division had aligned themselves too far to the right, and Olmsted's brigade missed the Union line entirely. Instead, the brunt of the enemy attack was met by the regiment directly to Olmsted's left, the 1st Confederate Infantry. In the confusion, a portion of Olmsted's brigade, including the 57th Georgia, had been pulled to the left, following the 1st Confederate right into the hornet's nest. They cut through the trees and found themselves surrounded by an entire division of Union troops. Alone and unexpectedly under fire from all sides, the Confederate infantry had no hope of winning this battle or even surviving it. Their commander, General Clement Stevens, rode out to the front of the line and ordered his men to fall back. As he was speaking, he was shot in the head and instantly killed. The 57th Georgia didn't need to be told twice. They did what they did best, scattered and ran. Robert Braswell ducked through a hail of gunfire, choked by clouds of smoke, leaping over the fallen bodies in his path. He climbed through the woods and over the banks of the creek without looking back. All but 16 members of the 57th Georgia made it out safely and met up with the rest of their brigade. 
But as the sun set, news trickled in from the battlefield. The 1st Confederate infantry had been decimated. At least a third of their men were dead. Robert's mind flashed with visions of the bodies he'd crawled over on his way to safety. His brothers could have been among the pile. He slipped through the ranks to find what remained of the 1st Confederate, bandaging their wounds by the last light of dusk. There, Robert heard the news. Billy and Samuel Braswell were both dead. Their bodies had been abandoned on the battlefield, along with hundreds of their comrades. Robert would remember this as the defining moment of his life, the separation point between the before and after. He'd seen hundreds of his fellow soldiers, friends, and neighbors die in the past two years, but losing his brothers was different. The youthful idealism that had once marked his perception of war was now completely extinguished. Over the next few days, the battle for Atlanta fell into unmitigated chaos. While the Georgians were marching into position on the morning of July 22nd, their divisional commander, General William Walker, was suddenly shot from his horse by a single bullet and fatally wounded. General Mercer, the former leader of the Mercer Olmsted Brigade, was chosen to replace him. Almost immediately, Mercer made the decision to send two of the division's three brigades into battle against a much larger Union force. They were both promptly pulverized, leaving Olmsted's brigade as the only unit left. While the leadership was debating their next move, a stray shell exploded. A piece of shrapnel hit Olmsted in the head, knocking him unconscious for weeks. Colonel Barkaloo of the 57th Georgia took his place, leading the only brigade of the entire division. Before evening fell, Barkaloo literally checked out and headed to the hospital, quote, exhausted by the fatigues of the day. He was replaced by Lieutenant Colonel Morgan Rawls. Before the troops even had time to process the change in leadership, Rawls was critically wounded. He was replaced by Lieutenant Colonel Cincinnatus S. Guyton, who, just a few hours earlier, had been the second in command for the 57th Georgia. At this point, Guyton's battlefield report stated, the brigade was in the utmost state of confusion as regarded its organization. I immediately ordered an advance, but the men could be induced to go no farther. As darkness set in, the Mercer, Olmsted, Barkaloo, Rawls, Guyton Brigade decided to hunker down in their trenches and call it a night. When the sun rose the next morning, the Confederates raised their white flag and negotiated a truce. During only a few days of battle, the Confederate forces had suffered somewhere between 5,500 and 8,000 casualties. Mercer's brigade had lost 929 men, more than a third of their original force. Standoffs and skirmishes continued until the beginning of September, when the Confederates withdrew from Atlanta entirely. Union General William Tecumseh Sherman held Atlanta as his headquarters for the next two months, forcibly evacuating all of its city's residents. Then, in November 1864, he moved his troops out 
burned what was left of the city and began his infamous March to the Sea. Throughout November, Union soldiers marched southeast from Atlanta to Savannah, leaving a trail of smoldering ash in their wake. Entire cities were burnt to the ground, not just military forts, but homes and private land. Sherman employed a scorched earth policy, believing the war would only end if the Confederacy's infrastructure and economy were completely destroyed. He burned civilian property, rail lines, and businesses. He even pulled data from the 1860 census to target areas with the most agriculture. His troops foraged for crops, stole horses and wagons, and then set farms ablaze under direct orders to enforce a devastation more or less relentless. In January 1865, the Mercer Olmsted Brigade traveled across Georgia on their way to North Carolina. As they passed through their hometowns, hundreds of soldiers slipped away to find their families, never to be seen again. Seeing the complete destruction of their homeland, the men knew there was no use in fighting anymore. Even Olmsted admitted, there was little hope for the Confederate cause, and I was about to enter another campaign from which there might be no return. With the Confederacy's defeat so imminent, the threat of legal punishment for desertion no longer carried much weight. And with most of their towns already burnt, raised, and occupied, helping their families survive seemed more urgent than defending whichever faraway bases that were still standing. The safest strategy was indeed to go home and wait for the war to be over. By the time they arrived in North Carolina, so many men had deserted that Olmsted had to travel back to Georgia and place advertisements in the local papers, asking the members of his brigade to return to duty. He eventually pulled together about 500 soldiers. William Vinson dutifully came back, as did Robert Braswell. Since neither man had children to support, they might have felt obligated to keep up the fight while their fellow soldiers headed home to look after their families. Or they might have felt that after everything they'd lost, they might as well stick it out to the end. The handful of survivors from the 57th Georgia were consolidated into Olmsted's original regiment, the 1st Georgia Volunteers. Olmsted recalled, they made a regiment that any man might be proud of, and I was proud, but it never fired another shot, for the war was practically at its end. On April 9, 1865, Generals Lee and Grant met at Appomattox Courthouse to negotiate a surrender. On the 26th, word came down to Olmsted's camp that the documents had been signed the Civil War was finally over. Some of the soldiers were furious. They screamed and swore, refusing to surrender. Others cried, faced with the reality that all of their sacrifices had been for nothing. Most were just relieved to finally go home. Charles Olmsted had mixed emotions. He recalled, I was weary of war and of the long separation from my wife and children. I was thankful, too, that life had been spared and that a new career could be begun. Yet, nevertheless, 
It was impossible to avoid a deep feeling of depression as memory brought back the high hope and courage with which we had entered the war. Of the thousand men who had originally formed the 57th Georgia Regiment in May 1862, only 170 remained as they turned over their arms in April 1865. As a small consolation, the survivors were allowed to keep their colors. The troops marched back to Georgia with their battle flags flying one last time. The destroyed railways forced the men to make the 230-mile journey from Greensboro, North Carolina to Augusta, Georgia on foot. When they reached Augusta in early May, the regiment disbanded. After three years of living and fighting together, it was the last time most of them would ever see each other. Charles Olmsted, now 28 and war-weary, was ready to go home and see his family for the first time in years. His wife had given birth to a baby son, and Olmsted still hadn't seen him. But before he could start the journey home, he received two pieces of devastating news. Confederate officers and their families had been banished from Savannah after Sherman occupied the city. His family was taking refuge with his mother-in-law in Milledgeville. And as for the baby, he had died in infancy. Olmsted would never get to meet him. Robert Braswell returned to Fort Valley as the only living son in his family. He was 18 now, a hardened man. Little remained of the spirited young adventurer who'd boarded the train to Savannah four years earlier. One thing he was sure of was that he would never leave Fort Valley again. When William Vinson made it home, he learned that Wright's wife, Christiana, had died of unknown causes the previous year. Charlie, who was about to turn four, was being raised by relatives. While no records remain of what happened to the Vinson family farm, we can assume that, like the rest of George's farmers, they were struggling. Between the damage that had been sustained during the war and a period of particularly bad weather, crop harvests had fallen drastically by the end of the war. In 1865, the annual cotton yield was less than a tenth of what it had been in 1860. Beyond the fields, the rest of Georgia's economy and infrastructure was in shambles. Homes and businesses had been turned to ash. The short-lived Confederate currency was now completely worthless. And the state's 460,000 newly emancipated slaves found themselves thrust into the middle of the chaos. In an attempt to reintegrate the former Confederate states into the Union, Congress passed the first Reconstruction Act in 1867, placing the South under U.S. military occupation. Former Confederates were barred from voting or holding office, and the Georgia state government was dissolved until they agreed to ratify the 14th Amendment and give full citizenship and voting rights to its black residents. Georgia quickly complied, but the forceful federal tactics only exacerbated political and racial tensions. The political conflicts and widespread destruction of the Civil War would shape Georgia for the rest of its history. Although the institution of slavery had finally come to an end, a new era of racial violence and economic instability was just beginning. 
for better or worse, life would never be the same for the soldiers and civilians who'd survived the war. After the dust of the Civil War had settled, Charles Olmsted went on to a quiet career in life insurance, shipping, and banking. Although he never met his only son, he and his wife Florence raised three daughters. He died in Savannah at the age of 89. Robert Braswell, true to his word, never left Fort Valley again. He married his childhood sweetheart and raised seven children on the farmland he inherited from his late grandfather. But over the years, nearly all the land was sold to keep the family afloat in the turbulent economy. In his later years, Robert became known around Fort Valley as a war hero and a local historian. There's no record of what happened to William Vinson between his surrender in 1865 and his death in 1916 at the age of 79. As for Wright and Christiana's son, Charlie, he eventually moved to Macon and found success as a farmer. Charlie was still an infant when both of his parents died. All he had to remember them by was the bleak letters Wright had sent home from the battlefield and a photograph the couple had taken before the war. Even decades later, Charlie's daughter recalls seeing him stare down at the photo with tears rolling from his eyes, trying to piece together the lives of the forebears who didn't survive to tell their stories. Thanks for listening to Survival. For more information, amongst the many sources we used, we found Hells Broke Loose in Georgia, Survival in a Civil War Regiment by Scott Walker, extremely helpful to our research. You can find all of ParCast's shows on Spotify and anywhere you listen to podcasts. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time. Survival was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Survival is written by Kate Gallagher and stars Irma Blanco and Tim Johnson. Survival.